Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Just got to note that uh, Ron and Cindy Barger's new little granddaughter needs brain surgery. This is Matt's daughter, Audrey. Just want to pray for them tonight. Father, we do bring little Audrey before you, God, and we ask that you would put your healing hand upon her. That you would touch her, Father, and heal her. That you would do a work that would just be obvious to all that it was a touch of God. And Lord, we pray that if you choose to use the doctors, that you would guide their hands and you'd keep her safe. Be with Matt and his wife. Be with Ron and Sydney. And Lord, we ask that you would just comfort them, that you'd give them that peace that surpasses all understanding, that they would know that little Audrey is in your hands. And Lord, as we look at your word tonight, we pray that you would minister to our hearts. You would speak to us, that you would give, Lord, application for our lives as we look at this event and this time in the life of David. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that points to the fact that the Bible is inspired by God is that the Bible uniquely presents its heroes in an unfavorable light. It it tells us the good, but it also tells us the bad and the ugly. It tells us of the victories, but it also tells us of the defeats and the failures. And I think for that reason, the Bible uniquely, in in, in a sense, stands out in that way. It tells us the whole story. It tells us the the whole picture. I don't know about you, but one of the things that, that frustrates me to no end about these presidential debates, you know, that that are on is is I, I never feel like I'm getting the whole story. You know, it's like one guy says this, the other guy says he's lying. And, you know, and it goes back and forth. And it's like, would somebody please, you know, the Bible does that. It tells us the whole truth. It tells us the whole story. So we see Moses committing murder. We see Abraham giving his wife into the harem of Pharaoh. We see Peter in all of his denials. The Bible uniquely tells us of the moral failures of its heroes. Now, most books, especially what you might call a holy book, isn't going to do that. Oh, they want to present their, their heroes in a light where we think that they, you know, walk on water. They never make mistakes. They never do anything wrong. But the Bible wants us to know very clearly, very distinctly that these men that we are reading about, men that God used in radical ways, men that touched, you know, people's lives, men that in a sense, you know, moved armies and moved mountains are men who are just like us, normal people, normal men and women with all their flaws and all their failures and all their sins and all their struggles. And yet God, in His grace, comes alongside. 
The failures only magnify for us the grace of God in their lives. So that what Proverbs 24 verse 16 declares, it's true that though a righteous man may fall seven times, he rises again. Well, in this section that we're looking at tonight, we see David in a place where he's hit rock bottom. We see him being deceitful. We see him acting in an undignified manner. As we come to chapter 21, we find David, he's on the run. He's running from King Saul, but the problem that he's going to make is he also starts here to run from the Lord. But listen, God in His grace is not going to let David get away. He has a plan, you see, and he has a purpose for this time, this season, and these events in David's life. He wants to use them in a special way. And although we see David falling in a big way here in this chapter, we will see him rise again as he turns to the Lord. And we see that the grace of God is more than ready to cover David and to carry him on. David, we find him in this place shaken, but not forsaken. Let's read here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one is with you. And so David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is only bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And then David answered, answered the priest and said to him, truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread for there was no bread there, but the showbread which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now we see David here at this point in his life, just to give a little bit of a recap, you know, we've seen where, where King Saul has been throwing spears at David. King Saul has been plotting to kill David. And to the dismay of his son, Jonathan, it became very, very plain to him when his dad started throwing spears at him that, yes, my dad is out to get David. So they had their little meeting there and David shot the arrow and he shot it beyond the rock. And it was the the the, the testimony. It was the the mark of uh, where, where David where excuse me, where Jonathan was communicating to David that, yes, you need to go. And so at this point in time, David is is on the run. He's becoming a fugitive. He's going to spend several years from this point running from King Saul, running for his life, living out in the wilderness, living out in caves. And David begins his run here by running to the right place. But when he gets there, he does the wrong thing. 
He comes there to the, the sanctuary. He comes there to the, the tabernacle. And he comes there to the place where the, the, the priests were ministering. And he comes to Ahimelech. Ahimelech wonders, why is David alone? This was unusual to him. It would be dangerous for David to be wandering around the countryside by himself. And so he's disturbed by this. He's troubled by this. And, and David pretends to not be alone. He talks about how his men are on a little special operation and they had to leave in, in, in haste and they were on this mission and they had to run, you know, and, and they're, you know, going out and about. And so we, that's why we, you know, don't have any provisions. And so he begins to lie here to the priest. David runs to the house of God. He runs to the right place, but he doesn't do business with God once he gets there, you know, you and I, we can do that. We can find ourselves running to the house of God. We can find ourselves running to this place of worship. But when we get here, when we come, God might speak through a message or he might speak through a person. He might seek to minister to our hearts and he might pinpoint even a problem there in our lives. But we don't respond. We pretend. Listen, brothers and sisters. This place is not a place for pretending. You see, God knows our hearts. God knows where we're at. God knows the struggles. God knows the failures. God knows the very things that all of us that we've come into this place this day, this week, that maybe we've been struggling with. He knows where we've fallen. He's known where we where we failed. And this is a place where we are to come to do business with God. To be real with God. To bring our hearts before God. David runs to the right place, but he does the wrong thing. Now, why didn't David tell the truth? Well, obviously, he was seeking to protect himself here. David, at this point, doesn't know who he can trust. He doesn't know who his friends are. He doesn't know who his enemies are. He doesn't know who's going to turn him over to King Saul or who's going to betray him. So obviously, David is trying to protect himself here, but it's also possible that he was trying to protect, protect Ahimelech, the priest. See, he doesn't. I think what David's thinking is what he doesn't know won't hurt him. And instead of coming and saying, you know, here's the deal. I don't know what's going on, but King Saul's turned into a madman. He's been throwing spears at me and, you know, I'm on the run. I don't know what I'm going to do. Can you pray for me? David tells this story. And here's the problem. At this moment in David's life, instead of placing his life in God's hands, David is taking his life into his own hands. He's choosing to take matters into his own hands. And folks, I don't know about you, but every time in my life that I have ever done that, I make a mess. I make a mess. It turns into a disaster when I take matters into my own Hands. That's what David's doing here. He asks for some food. He asks for some provision. The problem is the only bread that was available was the show bread, the bread that sat there in the tabernacle that was opposite the golden lampstand. And they would change the bread on a daily basis. There was 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel. The show bread was important and, and it literally it, it's described or the, the word, the, the, the phrase for it, the name of it is the bread of faces because it's a bread that is associated with the idea of being before the face of God. 
the bread of faces. F.B. Meyer calls the showbread the presence bread, like the presence of God. The 12 tribes represented by each loaf, it speaks of God's presence among his people. Now, this bread was to only be eaten by the priest. And what happens here is Ahimelech, he gives this bread to David. He says, here, I'll give you these loaves for your, your friends, for you and your men. And when he does this, he broke with the priestly custom or the tradition, but not with God's word. You see, Ahimelech rightly understood that human need was far more important than religious customs and traditions. And that's something that's important to learn. Human need supersedes our religious customs and traditions, not the word. But we all, in, in every kind of church saying, we have our, our customs, we have our traditions, we have our things that we do. And human need supersedes that. In fact, when Jesus and his disciples were once criticized for breaking religious customs by eating against traditions, Jesus turned to this story to illustrate the point that human need supersedes religious tradition. He uses this event. He talks about, you know, when David was hungry, he goes into the tabernacle there to get bread. And it was seen in a favorable light, like it was the right thing to do. Now, it's also worth noting, and this blesses me, that Jesus, when he tells this story, there's no mention of David's lie. There's no mention of David being in the wrong. And that, my friends, is God's grace. It's God's forgiveness. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to find in the New Testament, as you're reading through the New Testament, on the other side of Calvary, when the, Old Te- or the New Testament is referring to the Old Testament characters, it doesn't speak of them and their failures. In the New Testament, Lot is called righteous. The guy that goes and moves into Sodom. The guy whose wife turns into a pillar of salt because, you know, she so loved that wicked city. He's called righteous Lot. Abraham, we're told in Hebrews that he patiently endured to obtain the promise. Now, those of us who know the Bible, we know, wait a minute, what about Ishmael? Patiently endured? Come on. He took matters into his own hands and he even said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This product of my flesh that he could be the promised child. But in the New Testament, on this side of Calvary, it doesn't mention the failures. It doesn't mention the sins. And so Jesus talks about this story making no reference to, to David's lie because God's grace and his forgiveness, it's, it, it just far surpasses all of our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, it covers our sin. And although David's sins would be forgiven, we need to know this, that there's always consequences to sin. And David would come to horribly regret this lie because we read here that there was a guy by the name of Doag who was lurking there in the midst of the tabernacle. And he was there in the midst of this this little meeting. And Doag, he was the chief herdsman of King Saul. He was not an Israelite, but he was an Edomite. 
And the word that's translated chief, it means mighty, but it can also be used to mean violent or obstinate. And Doeg will certainly show himself to be an obstinate and violent man. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And so the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If if you will take it, take that, then take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. There were two things that David desired. One was food and the other was weapons. The only thing that was on hand was the sword of Goliath. Now, how did did Ahimelech get this sword? Well, I believe that David must have presented this to the Lord as an offering at some point after he killed the giant. And so kind of as an offering there, as a trophy in a sense to the Lord, it was placed there in that that place of worship. But now David is on the run. He needs a weapon. And it's it's as if the Lord is giving back that sword to David. David gave it to the Lord, but now he's given it back to him. And there's a reason, I think, for this. I think there's a reason why the only weapon on hand that day was this sword of Goliath. You see, God was wanting David to remember the faith that brought him victory over the giant. God was wanting him to remember the the, the victory, the work of God that was moving in his life to bring him victory that day, that David would need that same thing in this point in time, in this season of his life. But the problem is at this point, he's starting to trust more in his own cleverness than than in the Lord. And, And so David takes the sword and he's on the run again. And this time he runs from the house of God to the world. We pick it up in verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before him and pretended madness in their hands and scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come? Into my house. Now, this is almost comical to me, what David does here. It's almost comical to me because I think this is something that we can find ourselves doing from time to time when we're not trusting in the Lord that we'll do the stupidest of things. David leaves Nob, and where does he go? Where does he run? With Goliath's sword, by the way, he runs to Gath. Guess who was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. Here goes David. You know, he's running into Gath and he's got, you know, their hero's sword that he used to cut the guy's head off. 
And he's running in like, you know, here I, he's going to, the, to the Philistine champion's hometown. I mean, this would be like a member of the Raiders after they just, you know, annihilate the Chargers in a game that, you know, he comes into the Chargers clubhouse, you know, into their locker room after the game. I mean, that's the, the that, that would be what this would be like. I mean, but even worse. And these guys, I mean, they're, they're, they're like looking at David and right away it's like, you know, wait a minute, we know this guy. That's the guy that killed Goliath. And not just Goliath, he killed tens of thousands of our people, the Philistines. And David, once he gets there and he hears their talk, he hears their commotion, he realizes, man, I am in the wrong place. And so now he's not just pretending to be on a mission from King Saul. He pretends to be mad. He pretends to be crazy. He's scratching on the doors like a dog and he's drooling all over his beard. And, 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 and here we see that David is disgracing himself. He's acting in a very undignified manner. And you know, this is what sin usually does. This is what the effect that sin usually has upon us. It causes us to act in an undignified manner. It brings disgrace upon us and upon the Lord. I think everyone who likes to get loaded should see themselves on video loaded. They disgrace themselves. They act in an undignified manner. Maybe some of you in your BC days, you, you, you've seen that. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh gosh, I did that? I did what? I went where? That's what, day, that's, what, that's what sin does. It causes us to act in an undignified manner. It disgraces the Lord and brings shame on us. Here's David, the champion of Israel, and suddenly they're looking at him like, what a waste. What a disgrace. You know, the world loves to glory in our failures. They love to see when we become disgraced. They love to see the name of God just dragged in the mud. They, they love because it gives them another reason to say, oh, there's another one of those Christians. It's another one of those guys. Fallen again. They love that. David runs to the world in order to save his life. He totally alters his behavior, disgracing himself and the Lord. And that's what compromise always does. It will alter your behavior in such a way that you are disgraced and so is the Lord. But listen, the Lord wasn't going to let David find his refuge in the world. And listen, if you're here tonight, there's one or two of you here that you've been playing. You've been walking the fence a little bit. You've been playing around with the things of the world. And you've been thinking, you know what, man, I just it's, it's so alluring. And 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 oh, I just need to be refreshed. I need some re refuge. And, and you've been tempted to go this way or to go that way and to go in that direction. Let me tell you, you will never find your refuge in the world. God won't let you. In fact, God, because his spirit is inside of you, he is going to seek to make you miserable in your sin. 
He loves you that much. Sin, the Bible says, is pleasurable for a season. And then it brings forth death. And God will bring you like he did that prodigal son to that pig pen. But I encourage you, be wise tonight. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. No, there's no refuge for me in the world. There's no refuge for me in the things that this world says is, is going to make me happy. There's no refuge in that. God wasn't going to let David find his refuge in the world, and he won't less let us either. God had for David another plan. The shelter of a cave. We pick it up in verse, verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is where David will find his refuge. In fact, Adullam, it means refuge in a cave. A cave can be a good place for God to work in our lives. Remember Elijah? Elijah has this incredible victory over the 450 prophets of Baal. They have their big contest upon Mount Carmel. Elijah gets up there and, and he says, you know, hey, okay, call out to your God and we'll see if he's really the true God that he'll bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And so the 450 prophets of Baal, they're up there and they're dancing and they're chanting and they're cutting themselves and and you know all days going by and and Elijah's like you know well maybe your God's on vacation you know call a little bit louder maybe he's busy maybe all these different things and finally after hours and hours and hours and that just nothing is happening and then Elijah comes has him dig a trench around his altar and they pour water on filling up the trench and they soak the the sacrifice and then all of a sudden God just brings down fire, consumes the altar, dries up the trench. And the people realize, OK, Jehovah's God. And they kill the 450 prophets of Baal. It's a major victory in Elijah's life. It's a high moment there on that Mount Carmel. And then Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to have that guy's head. Elijah freaks out. Starts running through the desert. He stops. He's just worn out. And he says, God, I'm the last of your prophets. Just kill me now. And God brings birds to come and they bring food to him. They, and the angels that minister to him. And God tells him that, you know, that you're not the, the last prophet. There's a whole bunch more that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And, and, and Elijah keeps running and he, he ends up in a cave. And it's in this cave. That an interesting thing happens there because in that cave, there's a fire that, that is erupted supernaturally. There's an earthquake, the earth and the cave, it begins to shake and there's this mighty rushing wind. But in all of those things, it says Elijah said God wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in any of these things. And then the voice of God comes and he speaks to him in a still, small voice. Listen. Sometimes God needs to get us into a cave type of setting before we are still enough to hear that still small voice. Sometimes that cave is you get laid off from your job. Sometimes that cave is you find yourself sick. Sometimes that cave is you find yourself in the midst of a heavy trial and we think, oh, it's the end of us that we're doomed. But we find that God is seeking not to end our lives, but in the midst of that cave, in the midst of that moment to reroute our lives. 
And that cave time there is a place where he's taking us where he can speak to us. That we get still enough that we stop all of the activity and we stop all of the worry and we stop everything and we're left where it's just it's just us and God in that cave with Elijah. It was just him and God. And in the midst of it, he was able to discern, hey, God's not in this fire. He's not in this earthquake. He's not in this wind. This is all just circumstantial stuff. And God came and spake to him, spoke to him in that still small voice. That's what God is doing here. He brings David to a cave. You see, before David could go up, he had to be stripped down. God had effectively pulled all of the crutches out of David's life. Think about it. He lost his job. He lost his wife. He lost uh, his place in Saul's household. He lost his best friend, Jonathan. He had lost his position with the fighting men of Israel. And this wild dream that he had in his heart that one day he was going to be king, that is becoming a vapor as well. God brought him to the cave. You see, God has his university. Maybe you've heard of it. UBSD. Might want to go there. University of the backside of the desert. That's where we find David. Now, this is not the kind of stuff that you're going to learn at Bible school. In fact, here's the interesting thing. Any Bible college students here tonight? Okay, some of you Bible college students, it's, I'm glad that you're in Bible college. That's great. Bible college is a great thing. I think it's wonderful, the, the, the kids here that go to Bible college. But, but, I, but I guarantee you this, before God uses you in any type of a mighty way, after you get out of Bible college, you're going to go to UBSD, the University of the Backside of the Desert. You're going to go to that place in the wilderness where God takes everyone that he seeks to use. Moses spent time there. Joseph spent time there. David will spend time there. Paul spent time there. For Paul, it was a prison cell. For Joseph, it was slavery. For Moses, it was out in the desert with all of the sheep. And you go through the the chronicles of the, the Bible of the men and women that God has used in the Word. And then church history, you see all of them. They had their desert experiences. They're not fun but they're life-changing. There's a lot of lessons to be learned in the backside of the desert, but the main one is this, is that we have to come to the end of ourselves so that we can come to the beginning of God. And that's what God is doing here with David. He's taking away all of David's support so that it's only the only support that David has is God. He couldn't go to Samuel. He couldn't go to Jonathan. He couldn't go to the house of the Lord, but he could go to this humble cave and there find refuge. You see, his refuge wasn't going to be in the cave. But it was going to be in the Lord as he would meet him there in that cave. And what's interesting is at this time that God begins to bring others into David's life. That in this point of solitude, in this place where uh, of difficulty, where it's just him and God, God knows exactly what David needs. And he begins to bring to him. We, we pick it up in verse 1. It says, and so when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. The first that come to David is his own family. And this was a, a precious gift from God, because previously 
All David had was trouble and persecution from his brothers and from his father. But now they join him in this cave, the cave of Adullam. It seems that they finally came to recognize God's hand upon David. And what a a blessing that this must have been in this moment for, for David to see their friendly faces. Haven't you found God to be so good in that way? He's so good to give us exactly what we need. I can't tell you how many times where I found myself in in the midst of a of a difficult times. In fact, there was one particular. I think it was a Sunday evening. Sunday or a Wednesday night, I can't remember. It's a while back. And it was interesting because, you know, one thing that you guys don't get, Jeff would understand, Howard would understand, Phil, because they 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 teach and they they do this. But there's an incredible amount of warfare that goes on when you're standing here. You wouldn't think so. But but like there's this constant there's this constant battle that's always taking place. And on this one particular night, I remember I was I was teaching, I was sharing uh, the the word, and and um, I think on, on that particular night we actually were talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and a time had a time afterwards for people to come get prayed for, and God really moved, really worked, and I mean He was really uh, just people were coming up to get prayer, and and I was standing back here during the band was playing worship, and and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking this to myself. I'm thinking, you know, somebody else really needs to pastor this church. Because I just, you know, don't, I'm just not, I just can't do this, you know. And I was just like totally just being attacked and just feeling like, you know, I can't teach and I can't do this. And, 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 and really, I was like running names through my head, you know, type of a thing. And after it was over, I mean, I, I was just really depressed and it was and, and, and just feeling totally out of it. And a brother comes up to me and he just says, he says, yeah, I just want you to know your teaching really blesses me. And, and it was weird because it was like God knew at that particular moment I needed to hear that, especially from this particular guy because he's not the kind of guy that goes around saying that type of thing or giving a lot of compliments and uh, and it just blessed me I knew it was a word from the Lord for me that God was saying quit being an idiot and know that I've called you you know to this that's what God's doing here for David it's like he's in this place where he started you know all these doubts and all these things are going through his mind and it's like God's saying look I'm with you Here's your family to come alongside of you. After his family, then we see that God is going to bring some other people into David's life and do something that he would never, ever imagine. We pick it up in verse 2, and it says, And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves to him, and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Suddenly, David isn't alone. God has gathered to him 400 guys. Now, they weren't the the 400 most ideal guys. You know, we read here of them, the description, they were in distress, they were in debt, and they were discontented. So they, they were guys who had an attitude, they were guys that had no money, and they were guys who were kind of stressed out, you know? 
That's the group of guys that, that God brings to David at this particular moment. But these men were the most unlikely candidates to be the mighty men that would become David's army. And yet that's exactly what God does here. He takes these guys and he uses them to establish the kingdom of Israel to bring it to the zenith of its glory by using these men to destroy the armies of Israel. But they started in distress, in debt, and discontented. Distress, it means under pressure. In debt, they couldn't afford to pay their bills. And discontented, it was those who were of bitterness of soul. These guys, they were sick and tired of Saul ruling over them. And these are the guys that God brings to David. They all came to David when he was down and when he was out, when he was on the run. Now, once David came into the throne, once he became king, there was a whole bunch of people that wanted to be David's friend. There was a whole bunch of people that wanted to be in his life. But these guys came. God brought these guys in this dark moment of the soul. In this dark moment in his life. And herein, David becomes for these guys a type of Christ, the captain of our salvation. You see, it was Jesus who said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus gives a general invitation to a world that is in debt and in distress and discontented. Those who realize, you know, I'm in debt to God because of my sin. Those who realize I'm discontented with, with this life and the affairs of this life. I'm, I'm discontented with all these things in the world that I've tried to make me happy and they haven't satisfied. Jesus says, come unto me. You're weary in your soul. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Alan Redpath made this observation. Do you see the truth of which this Old Testament story is so graphic a picture. Just as in David's day, there is a king in exile who is gathering around him a company of people who are in distress and in debt and discontented. And he's training and preparing them for the day that he shall come to reign. Brothers and sisters, that's you and I. That's you and I. I'm not ashamed at all to say, I'm, I'm one of these guys. In debt, in distress, discontented. I can be freaked out with the best of them. But hey, I'm in the Lord's army. Jesus has brought me to himself. See, God can do incredible things through guys like this. God gathered these guys together around David and he became a captain over them. And God would use David to make this group of men, this ragtag group of renegades into the kind of men described in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 8. Listen while I read it to you. That they were mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle the shield and the spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and as swift as gazelles on the mountains. In another part of First Chronicles, it says that they were stout-hearted men. What happened? What happened with these guys that they went from being in distress, discontent, and in debt guys to being guys that are described as mighty men of valor with faces like lions, stout-hearted men? 
What happened to these guys? As they spent time with David, as they were under David's leadership, who David was in the Lord, it rubbed off on them. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God declares happens with us. When we spend time with our greater than David, our hero, Jesus Christ, when we sit at at his feet, when we allow him to lead us. When we walk in the victory that is ours because he is our leader. God has the ability to take those of us who are in debt, in distress, freaked out people and make us into stout hearted men and women. Mighty men of valor, men of faith. Able to walk in the miraculous. Because of the effect of our greater than David, Jesus has upon us. It's interesting when you read through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. It's interesting that of all the men who were David's men, you know what? None of them were giant killers. Not a one. She's that where Saul's been, excuse me. Not a one. Why is that? Well, Saul didn't kill any giants. Saul wasn't much of a great warrior. What's interesting, though, about these men that we'll see as we continue on in in this study of David, we'll see when we get to 2 Samuel 22, several of these guys, they were giant killers. A couple of them, they single-handedly held off 800 guys. Why? David did those things. And who David was, it rubbed off on them. I think God wants to reach this world around us. We'll talk about our little sphere of influence here in North County. And I wonder in this crowd here tonight, if if there are some men and women that God is maybe wanting to say, you know what, I want to make you, you a ragtag renegade into a mighty man, a mighty woman of valor, stout hearted in the Lord. If you'll let me, if you'll be willing. Now, we can answer and say, oh, I can't do that. I'm too young. Jeremiah tried to say that. Or you can say, you know, I can't do that. I'm too old. Moses tried to say that. You can say, my life is a mess. I can't do that. (laughs) These guys, their life was a mess. Didn't get any messier than this group and how they're described. All that we can do is gather around Jesus and tell him, Lord, I am distressed. I am discontented with all the things that are going on in my life and all the world around me, Lord, it stinks. Lord, I'm in debt to you, but Lord, I'm willing. Do with me, work in me as you would desire. God is beginning to do an incredible thing here in David's life. Through this time as he is bringing him to this cave, He's bringing him there to this the university of the backside of the desert where God is going to spend the next 10 years or so working in David's life to make him into the man who would be the greatest king that Israel would ever have except our Lord Jesus Christ. Does God have you in a place tonight? A desert, a cave, a difficulty. Don't run from it. Embrace it. 
And watch how God in the midst of that, as you embrace his will in this time, begins to bring into your life different people. To be a part of that molding and shaping process that he wants to do in you. And then also that he wants to have you have an effect upon them to maybe make them into a, a, a from going to be a, a ragtag renegade into a mighty man, a mighty woman of valor, one that that God can use. As we mentioned on Sunday, the valleys have their purpose. They have their reason. And that's what God is doing. In David's life at this time. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 22 next week and continue on here. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we read this book, that it's not just a story of victory, that it's not a story that presents perfect, idealistic people who never fail, who never say the wrong thing, who never do the wrong thing. For Lord, if it was, it would just be so condemning to us. How could we ever measure up? But Lord, I'm thankful tonight that instead, what you present before us is a man who you described as a man after your own heart. And yet we see him tonight in a low point. Running. Running from you. Trying to find refuge in the world. Allowing himself to be disgraced in the process. Lord, I know that there's more than one of us who have done that same thing a time or two. We've been where we shouldn't have been, allowed ourselves to be disgraced, said what we shouldn't have said, didn't stand when we shouldn't have stood or when we should have stood. And Lord, I thank you that the blood of your son, Jesus, covers all of our failure, all of our sin, all of our misgivings. It's covered, taken away, forgiven and forgotten that we are refreshed in you. And Lord, I'm also thankful that you know and you see the importance of the cave times, of the desert times, when it's just the two of us. Lord, I pray for those in the midst of that tonight, that they would embrace it, that they would be still enough that they would quiet their hearts, that they would quit trying to figure out how to get out of the cave. And they would be still that they might distinguish tonight your voice from the fire and the earthquake and the mighty wind. That they would allow you to speak to their hearts even now to do a work in them. Lord, we thank you for how you lead us how you direct us, the work that you seek to do in us. Lord, have your way in our lives this night. In Jesus' name, amen.